0: Let's take our Bibles. Let's talk about that great God that Bob just sang about. We're headed to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, if you would. Join me there, and you can stick a finger. We're going to be headed over to the book of Revelation as well. Uh, those of you who haven't been with us or just joining us on the live stream as well. We are going through a series on end times, trying to answer a lot of the different questions. And you'll, you'll see that I put inside the bulletin today that I would like, if it works, and if you have an interest, and if you have enough questions, to just set aside one Sunday where we just answer your questions about the end times and prophecy and try to fill in the things that we didn't answer to your satisfaction up to this point. And we'll do that towards the end of the series if you have questions. There's cards back by the foyer they can fill out, drop off in the office, and that'll help us to plan if we can do that, if that'll be a benefit to you. And so where we're at in our series, we were talking about the events and where we stopped is we've already talked about the tribulation. We talked about Jesus Christ coming back from heaven and what's going to happen right after that. There is, in Matthew 25, there's a sheep goat judgment that takes place and then he sets up his kingdom of a thousand years here on this earth. We're going to be explaining that a little bit more in depth. But where we're at right now is talking about what happens to everybody at that moment. We said last week that a number of people go to hell, a number of people will be entering into heaven at that moment to join the many who are there beforehand. And heaven's an important topic. It keeps us going. There's a story that talks about a true incident in history of a Florence Chadwick that was the first woman who swam across the English Channel. She decided that what she wanted to do after that is she was going to uh, swim across the bay that led from Catalina Island up to the coast of California. And so she began began the ordeal after she did her training. On a certain day she got into the water and she began to swim these 22 miles. And as she was swimming, everything was going well, but all of a sudden something happened around the 15th, 17th hour that got her really exhausted. Now me, I would have had it within the first 100 yards. But she made it all the way up to that point. And as she was swimming along, all of a sudden a fog bang came in. And the fog bank made it impossible for her to see anything on the horizon anymore because with the fog came some more waves. Her crew that was accompanying her in the boat right next to her, they were encouraging her and they were saying, we can see it, you're getting close, you're getting close. But she said these comments where she said at she reached a point, she hit a wall because all I could see was the fog. I would have made it if I could have seen the shore, even just a glimpse, I would have made it. So she stopped, got into the boat and realized once she was up out of the water she was within a half mile of reaching her goal. She couldn't see it She couldn't see the end. She couldn't see the shore, and it just zapped her strength. Jesus is talking to his disciples in John chapter 14. He's telling them that they're going to be in waters that are going to be pretty rough at times. Fog going to be all around. And he wants them to be able to maintain consistency. So one of the things he tells them about is what's on the other side. What about the shore of heaven? And he describes it in John chapter 14, where we read these words, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And whither I go, you know, and the way you know. And Thomas said unto him, Lord, We know not whither you go, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. This was given to encourage the disciples. And he gave them some really fantastic truths. He's going to describe in this passage, and we're going to look at a few others, to get an idea of what heaven is like, that ought ought to thrill your heart. Now there's a phrase I used up here that's going to cause some of you a little bit of a, a conflict. I've used the word up here in describing what I want to talk about is the intermediate heaven. And some of you are already thinking, what do you mean an intermediate heaven? Heaven's supposed to be eternal. Well let me explain what I'm talking about. When we talk about heaven, we're typically referring to the place where God and Jesus dwells and we're gonna, where we're going to dwell with Jesus. And as we go through scriptures to find out about that, The fact is that that heaven where Jesus lives at times with his saints, it occurs at different spots or different places. Every time it's the same quality, it's the same characteristics, holiness, peace, comfort. But there are different locations, different spots where it occurs throughout human history. What I mean by that is this, let let me go back to where we were last Sunday night and again I'm going to do this real briefly but last Sunday night explained it more in detail. In the Old Testament what they did is when they died they all went to Sheol. Jesus Christ in the prophecy of uh, Psalm 22 he even said do not leave my soul in Sheol." Sheol. He's not talking about the grave, he's talking about the place of the dead. And the understanding in my understanding, it goes this way that in the Old Testament, there was a place where all the spirits went saved and unsaved, and there was an upper area and there was a lower area that was divided by a great chasm, Luke chapter 16. They couldn't go one to the other. And the upper part of Sheol was referred to in scriptures as paradise, Abraham's bosom it's a place where Lazarus, and Luke 16 went to, peace and comfort. The lower part was where there was the flames, the fire, the torment for the rich man and others who went there. When Jesus died, Jesus went to the upper region of Sheol where he could communicate with those who, according to Peter's epistle, they were in the lower part of Sheol, the ones who had been unsaved through time, especially those who had denied the gospel, that denied salvation at the flood. And Jesus preached to them. That's where he was and that's why, like in the Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell. He went into this area, the place of the dead, Sheol literally. And he was there, and then when he resurrected, he came out of there. Okay, this is the place, the upper compartment that he says to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in Sheol, the upper place. That was peace and comfort. Jesus resurrects, and then 40 days later when Jesus ascends to heaven, he takes that upper realm and transfers everybody to heaven as we know it today. Heaven there. That heaven that's talked about, that our loved ones go to. The heaven that when we get raptured, we go to. But eventually, when he sets up his kingdom, he's going to bring that heaven down to this earth, and it's going to be that kingdom on earth, heaven on earth for a thousand years. And then after that, he's going to destroy heaven and earth and recreate an entirely new heaven and new earth. And so Sheol, the upper paradise in the past, place of peace and comfort, but it was located different than present heaven, peace, comfort, or the kingdom on earth which is heavenly or the new heaven and new earth. And so what we're talking about is the one that's right now, the one that's existing. Where again your loved ones have gone to, where our relatives are, where any saint from the time of the uh, the church age on, where they are where they are right now. Where again when we get raptured, where are we going to? And so this morning I want to describe the place this evening I want to look at some exhaustive passages that talk about what we will be like there, but this morning let's just talk about what that place is like. And there are several characteristics, some I mentioned last week, so I'm going to go faster than normal. Okay, The first aspect of this heaven is real. Jesus said, in this text we're looking at, if it were not so, I would have told you. Heaven is a real place. Not imaginary, not make-believe. But also the aspect of real is, it's just like your pew you're sitting on. It has matter. It has structure. It has um, substance to it. It's not just spiritual that you can put your hand through. There's matter in heaven. There's physical matter there. And you say, well, wait a minute, how does this work in the spiritual realm that you can have physical matter? Hey, it happens all the time, even right now. It's going on right around us. Do you remember in the Old Testament that the prophet who were, they were surrounded by the enemy hosts, he said, God help my servant to be able to see. And when the servant was able to see the spiritual realm, there was the vast host of God's army there. The spiritual and the, uh, even on earth, there's interaction. There's not total isolation one to the other. Um, When Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, all of a sudden you have Moses and you have Elijah appear next to him. Though they were characters in heaven, they were able to interact with earth at that moment. You have where the angels came to the ladies and multiple times throughout the book of Acts, angels were appearing and giving assistance in talking. So in the spiritual realm here in our, our physical earth, spiritual beings, they can interact at times. They can coexist in that, at times to be visible. The same thing goes the opposite. What about the heaven? Can something physically be there? Well, Jesus is there and he's in body right now. He's been resurrected. So he's and when you get raptured and you go to heaven, you're taking your physical body to heaven. So that heaven isn't just this a fear, you know, this area that's just spirit and just an orb. Physical matter can be there, structure is there. As well as when we come back, we're riding on horses. Our real bodies are on real horses. So there's a pasture someplace up there right now that has the horses. And so we look and say, okay, it's a real place. Now, you might dispute it. You might deny it. A number of years ago, Muammar Gaddafi, anybody remember him? Okay, out of Libya. Yeah, you're all going, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, when he was in charge of Libya, he had a dispute with England. They, dis- they didn't understand each other on a certain matter. So Gaddafi made a ruling in Libya that England doesn't exist. And so he ordered that on all the maps, in all the books, kids are... England's gone. Just because he declared right around to the year 2000 that England wasn't there anymore and on the maps it just pictured as part of the sea. Just because he said that didn't make it so. Just because somebody says well I don't believe in heaven or I don't believe in hell. It doesn't make it so. They're, heaven's a real place. It's a real place. Something else about heaven that we mentioned last Sunday night and expanded upon, but I want to rehearse again. It's relevant. What I mean is you can relate to heaven. It says, I go to prepare a place for you. Okay? God isn't preparing a place for him. He's all, he's, he doesn't need a place. God is God. Okay? And he, he just chooses to say, I'm going to prepare a place for you where you can dwell with me. And so the heaven has that aspect that it's designed where you and I can understand. We can relate. We can all of a sudden have some type of interaction there. What we mean by that is this idea that heaven has homes. God doesn't need a home, but for us that makes sense. Heaven doesn't need government, but God sets it up because that's something we need to structure. Heaven, heaven has music. It has clothing. It has people. It has things that we can relate to. So it's relevant for us that we can enjoy. God is designing a heaven in such a way that it is a place where you can not only have fellowship with Him, but you're going to be able to enjoy other blessings that people are used to enjoying, such as food, okay, and other things like that. So we have this about heaven. It's remarkable. It's remarkable. What I mean by that is when he makes the phrase in my father's house are many mansions, it's remarkable in the fact that heaven one aspect of it is it's very unique. It's absolutely only design. Oglethorpe was a British general and when the colonies were being uh, put together here in America, he was given the permission to head up starting the colony of Georgia he had already in his mind determined he was going to build a city wherever he got a colony, he built Savannah. And he based that city's plan on the Roman encampments from ancient Roman Empire, where everything was in grids and sectioned, and there was going to be junctures at every so often. And so it was a, a perfect design of straight streets. It would never work in Pennsylvania. Okay. But he made this... Savannah is the only city in the world that has such a specific grid work. Well, heaven is extremely unique in that heaven is the one and only place that it has longevity in its structure. I'm going to prepare a place for you, and it says I'm going to prepare many mansions. The word mansions isn't talking about palatio, but rather permanent dwelling place. Just recently, was it last week, the week before, they found a city in in Egypt, 3,000 years old, Okay, something, some ancient site, but it was ancient ruins. They found just the leftover of the city. Heaven will never have ruins. It's going to be permanent in that structure. As well, it's going to be remarkable because of the makeup. Okay, what we think are the greatest jewels and gems are foundation material, our street materials. Heaven's remarkable. It's remarkable in the sense that. A perfect environment. We are going to have days like this all the time. Okay, we're not going to have the cold, the sleet. We're not going to have the excessive hot. Okay, it's going to be. And again, maybe it's maybe your little part of heaven is going to have your own little, you know, temperature gauge. I don't know, you know, sleep number bed. Here it is. For wherever I'm at, heaven's going to be remarkable. Okay, in that sense, that it's perfect, untainted by sin. But the best part of heaven is its main attraction. Let's see if we can do this game for just a second. Okay, if somebody says, okay, what is the main attraction? If you're, you're visiting somewhere and you say, okay, I'm from Lebanon, baloney capital of the world, that doesn't register with most people. And so we say, well, we're close to Hershey. What's the thing that most people think about when they think about Hershey? Okay, you know, something chocolate. Okay, so Lancaster. Probably the Amish, probably the Amish. Here's another one, Orlando. Oh man, you guys are good at this. Okay, Orlando, let's see. What about China? What would be an attraction? The Great Wall. The great Wall. Okay, my, my, great minds thinking the same way. Okay, Rome. Colosseum, great. Shady Maple. <laughs> okay. Where, you know, Belly God's Tabernacle, Shady Maple, okay. <laughs> okay, that's the main attraction that's, that's headed there. The main attraction of heaven that's going to make it so delightful is Jesus Christ. In the book of Revelation, when John first gets a glimpse of the heavens, what is he so astounded by? Jesus Christ. That appearance of Revelation chapter 1, where he sees this brilliant, brilliant figure and his hair of wool and his shining, burning eyes, and he falls down as a dead man. And so heaven is remarkable for all those reasons. Let's talk about this. Heaven's roomy. Heaven's a roomy place. Okay, what I mean by that is this, where he says many mansions, permanent dwelling places. The place that we know that is being designed in heaven that eventually is going to come to this earth uh, in time but it's there in heaven that gives us dimensions is called the New Jerusalem of that holy city. When we go into the scriptures and say, okay, what does he give us for a description? He says that somebody there, John writes about him, is measuring. The only reason he's got somebody measuring is to give us something we can relate to, to understand, to get impressed by what's happening when when he's building the city. And so he measures it. And if you recall, the measurements of this city is 1,500 miles in every direction. Whether it be a cube or whether it be a pyramid, I don't know, you don't know, but it's 1,500 miles. If we were to take that and put that in the United States, it would cover pretty much everything from the east of the Mississippi. This is the one city. That's huge. We think New York is huge. We think that Meyerstown is huge. We, we think Ono is amazing. Okay. <laughs> the New Jerusalem, the heavenly city, is that massive. Now, if you and I were to take that and say, okay, just get an idea to how big it is, let's, I'm going to stay at Jersey Coast, you go to California, okay, and we stand at the opposite sides, and we say, okay, let's see if we can build something in the middle that is so tall that we can both see it on a, you know, on a clear day, we can see forever, they should make a song of that, okay, uh, that we can see forever and see this tower. That tower, because of the curvature of the earth, let's say we're going to put it in the middle of the states, that tower, for both of us to see it on any given day, is 300 miles high. And how high is the New Jerusalem? 1,500 miles. Five times this height. In other words, it's going to overwhelm the horizon. And if we were to say, okay, let me get a size of you know, how many people could be there. Let's take all the people on planet earth today. And let's divide this cube, if it's a cube, let's divide it evenly and give the same acreage based on every 25 feet there's a new floor. And if we took the acreage of that cube and we gave everybody equal portions to live in, less than a handful of us would be able to have Lebanon County to ourselves, that same size. This place is massive. Why is it so big? Because God is not willing that any should perish. He's making it big enough for everybody, including you, including you. And so it's a roomy place. Let's talk about what else is a characteristic. There's a place of rest. That idea comes from out of John 14 where he says, let not your heart be pulled apart. Let not your heart be so filled with anxiety. Let not your heart be troubled. Okay, He's talking about rest. Now we can run to multiple other passages that talk about heavenly rest. There's an entire section in the book of Hebrews that gives several different times he talks about the rest of heaven. I just pulled out a couple of phrases. There remains therefore a rest to the people of God for which we have believed we enter into that rest. Okay? So you can read this entire text that talks about heaven being a place of rest. As well in the book of Revelation. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. Yea, saith the Spirit that they may rest from their labors and their works which follow them. Because they're going to be in that heaven. Okay? Here's another passage that talks about those who are martyred in the first three and a half years. Those who are dead. And again, what they're experiencing is the heaven that we will experience. White robes were given unto them, every one, and it was said unto them that they should rest. What do we mean about this rest? Do we mean this? And some people are really good at this. Some people can do it anywhere, okay? They can pick any spot or any place, they can do it sitting down, standing up, upside down. They can do it at any different location, or you know, at any moment that all of a sudden, let's rest, let's get this moment that they need to just now that's got to be the most unsafe one. OK Or we, uh, we often see kids do this, right? That kids are in any different posture. OK <laughs> now, How many of you have had kids that fell asleep in their food? OK? Yes? Okay, all of ours did. I don't know, maybe it was the medication we gave them. Um, <laughs> the, the point is that, is this the rest that we're talking about? Okay, that heaven's going to be a place where we're going to do a lot of this. We're just going to sleep. And we're going to be able to sleep all day, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. We wake up and go back to bed on Wednesday, Thursday. <laughs> that doesn't thrill my heart at all. Okay. I can feel the backache coming on already, you know, too much. That's not the rest that we're talking about in scriptures. What I mean is this. We're not going to be lying around in heaven sleeping all day and just having perpetual sleep. Rather, what the idea is, peace, that idea of no difficulties, the idea of satisfaction. Like on the seventh day, God rested. Does that mean he was tuckered out? That he just fell asleep, that God didn't. Yeah, you know, he was exhausted. No, no. There's a sense of satisfaction. There's a sense of enjoyment. The idea of it's done. i have accomplished. I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to relish in it. I'm going to, you know, be feel fulfill, fulfilled like I've accomplished something. Okay, that's the rest that we're talking about. It's that rest that Lazarus had in paradise. He didn't sleep. We'll be talking about that tonight. There is a very, very popular doctrine being promoted that when we die we go into a comatose status and stay there for an extended period of time. Okay, that several different groups are teaching. We'll be showing from scripture where that's errant this evening when we talk about what we are like in heaven. So Lazarus was comforted And in this fact that it says, in your presence is joy. At your right hand there is pleasures forevermore. With that idea that, okay it's a place that we're not going to be sleeping, but we're going to be enjoying things. We're going to be feeling fulfilled. Let me see if I can picture it this way. So you go to college you all of a sudden graduate this spring and you finally get your degree. That day of graduation there's a sense of achievement. There's a sense of enjoyment. There's a sense of I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to celebrate the satisfaction that hey look I've accomplished it. That's, in that sense that's the sense of resting. That you have other things to be doing but you're really relishing in the accomplishment. So you get into sports in high school. Your team they win a championship. And you get voted MVP. MVP. You're going to rest. You're going to be thrilled by that. You're going you're gonna to have an excitement that says, hey, we had a good season. I'm going to enjoy that medal, that medallion, that trophy. And I'm expe- especially excited that my peers recognized and they made this commendation. You work hard. You put in your 50, 60 hours. You're laboring and you're toiling. And your boss comes up to you and your boss says, I'm going to promote you. I'm going to give you a um, A raise. You're resting in this sense that, hey, you're excited. This this is a thrill. This is something that's enjoyable. It doesn't mean you'll never work again. It means that you're going to really relish the moment. Well, that's what he means when he says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. So heaven is a place of rest in that sense that it doesn't mean we're not going to be busy, but it means that we're going to have a satisfaction that Happens periodically, but that's going to be our general feeling when we're in heaven. Heaven is also a place of reunions. It's a place of reunions. Where I am, there you all may be also, is what it says in the original language. Well, we understand that. We understand that the reunion of heaven, when some of us are going to be able to see the loved ones who have already gone on. Do we look forward to that? Yeah, I look forward to seeing my mom again. You look forward to seeing cousins, relatives, family members, parents, spouses, Some of you, your kids, where you're going to have that reunion, and that's going to be exciting, no doubt. But there's also the reunion of being with Christ, that where I am, there you may be also, being with the Lord who saved your soul. And so there's an aspect that that's going to be a thrill. There's going to be the thrill of the aspect of people that you may not have known, or you have known, who have preceded you in heaven, kind of like John Brodus described it. Now he's a preacher. Baptist preacher from the mid-1800s that pastored a number of churches and then ended up uh, helping to start and to teach in a seminary for a number of years. Wrote several books, commentaries, things of that sort. And what he talks about in one of his, his stories about his life is that when he was a youngster, his parents would go to revival meetings periodically. And when they go to revival meetings, they would have him come along. So even as a youngster who was 10, 11, 12 years of age, he went to the revival meetings and he responded when they gave an invitation. And he went forward and he asked, you know, through the, the direction of somebody who was counseling him, he asked Christ to be a Savior. And so he prayed and got born again. Well, he had a real good buddy by the name of Sandy Jones, a redhead kid that lived down the block, and they would get together on a regular basis. And the first thing he did is he talked to Sandy about Sandy needing to accept Jesus. And he explained it to him time and time and time and time again. Eventually, as a youngster, Sandy prayed to get saved. And started going to church with him and growing in his faith. Well, Brotus got to where he was in upper teens. He went away to go to get training for doing gospel ministry. But he would periodically come back and visit family. Whenever he would come back to the town, he would make sure that he looked up his old friend, best friend, Sandy Jones. It always started. The, same, the, the conversation did the same thing. Whenever he would see Sandy and they'd be to- approaching, Sandy would reach out his hand and he would say thank you John, thank you for introducing me to Jesus. That'd be the first thing he would say. Brodus ended up as an adult, he passed didn't get home frequently, but whenever he got home and in his teaching years he was more um, able to get home most every year, he would make it a point to go and see his friend Sandy. Every time he would approach Sandy, he would stick out his hand and he would say, thank you, John. Thank you for leading me to Jesus. Eventually, Brotus comes to the point where he is on his deathbed, he has his family around him. His friend Sandy, he had heard that he had gone to be with the Lord a couple years before. And as Brotus is saying, I'm going to miss you. I look forward to being reunited with all the family members. He made this comment in his last few minutes. He said, What's going to be exciting is to see Sandy again and I'm sure I know what he's going to say to me. When he meets Sandy, Sandy's going to stick out his hand and say, thank you John, thank you for introducing me to Jesus. I wonder how many people are going to do that to you. When you get to heaven, people are going to say to you, thank you. thank you." People that have preceded you, that you gave a track to, that you prayed for, that you gave money to missions, that was used in a way to lead people. And all of a sudden when you get there, part of the reunion is somebody you've never met before is going to walk up to you and say thank you. Thank you for what you did because that made all the difference for me to be here. Maybe it's somebody you all you do know and they walk up and say thank you. Thank you to introducing me to Jesus. That's going to be some of the fun things of heaven is being able to have those reunions. There's another aspect about heaven. It's rejoicing let not your heart be troubled. In other words, stop being troubled. Why? Because of heaven. Because of what the fact of heaven that there's rejoicing. Do you remember that Jesus gave a story in Luke chapter 15? Three of them. Three parables. Back to back to back to back. And as he's preaching these parables, he talks in each one of them about something valuable that got lost. He talks first of all about a a man who had sheep. Do you remember what got lost? I already gave it to you. Okay. One of the sheep. Thank you. Somebody. Okay. One of the sheep. Okay. The man went and found it. Remember what the lady lost? A coin. Very good. Do you remember what the third story is about? The lost son. Okay. The lost son. Uh, and, and what happens is each time the item is lost, it's valuable to the owner. The owner searches for it. And each time the item is found. Okay. Found again. And when it is found, what happens? Every time you have this same response, you have rejoicing. And he makes this comment after each one. Likewise shall joy in heaven over one sinner that repents. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God when a sinner repents. Okay? The third time he doesn't say it, by the way. The third time in that text, he leaves it open-ended. Do you remember why? Do you remember who he's telling this story to? He's telling it to a group of people. Somebody said. He's telling it to the Pharisees who at the moment that he tells the story, the Pharisees aren't happy that people are, are repenting. They're mad that sinners are gathering around Jesus. And so they're critical that Jesus is hanging around these other people who are sinners and publicans. And what do these people have to do with God? And Jesus tells a story that basically says God is rejoicing over the tax collector, over the sinners getting saved. Except for the very last story. In the very last story, he introduces another character in the last paragraph. He introduces, remember who it is? It's in the story of the lost son. Who's he introduced at the very end? The big brother. The big brother who responds how when the, son come, the prodigal comes home. He's angry. He's upset. He's jealous. Who is Jesus implying is the big brother? The Pharisees. The Pharisees. But his point of what he's trying to teach is in heaven the predominant emotion is joy. Is there other emotions at times? Tonight I'll show you there is. Okay. But the predominant re- uh, emotion is joy. I mentioned at the beginning put your finger in Revelation 5. You're there okay? Let me point out a couple passages here that are amazing, describing what's going to happen in heaven, the heaven that we are headed towards, either now or when we get raptured. In In Revelation 5, jump down to verse 8. This is a description giving us what's happening in heaven. And when he had taken the book, and the four beasts and the four and and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps, golden vials, full of odors or incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book, and to open the seals thereof. For you were slain, and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred, tongue, people, nation, and hast made us unto our God, kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth." Who's singing that song? The four and twenty elders I know. But who are they? Don't say it's Israel. It's not the Jews. How do I know that? It's not Israel because they're redeemed out of where? Every nation, tongue, language. This is you. This is me. This is us who are born, the Gentiles, from all throughout the world. When we get to heaven, one of the things we're going to do is we're going to celebrate and we're going to be singing songs of praises to the Lord because of what he's done for us, that he redeemed us from all these different cultures, made us all to be kings as well as priests. Amazing. We're going to be rejoicing in heaven. Watch what happens in the next paragraph. A new group of people start singing. Verse 11. And I beheld and heard the voice of many, what? Angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders. The number of them, what do you have for a number? Yeah, my King James reads 10,000 times 10,000. Anybody have something else? Okay. The original word, two words right back to back are this. This is the, this is the Greek words. Myriads, myriads. What's that sound like to you? Myriads, that's the word. Something that's without limit. There are myriads, myriads, and then he uses the highest number they had, thousands and thousands. Okay, and they're all singing. And he goes on that they sing a song... Saying with a loud voice, and, and emphasize aloud, okay? Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom, strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature, all of a sudden, they, uh, under heaven and earth, they join in the singing. Okay, we heard a special this morning where Bob was singing and towards the end, he is doing a crescendo. I am not going to try to imitate it, okay? I'll ruin the moment. So he's giving the crescendo. And at the crescendo, you're going, whoo, whoo, that, ooh, ooh. Think of millions upon millions beyond number of angels singing and doing a crescendo. Number one, we will be going, whoa, whoa, okay? Then we will be caught up in the moment. You know, like when you hear something so fantastic, all of a sudden inside you're feeling it and you're feeling it in physically and emotionally and spiritually. Wow, what a sound in heaven. And we don't even need Bose radio. It's going to be amazing. Revelation 19 Revelation 19, he talks about this rejoicing. This is right before Jesus comes back. We're there in heaven. We're still singing right before he launches his second coming. And we read in Revelation 19, verse 1. After these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. For he hath judged the great whore. The, uh, verse 3. And again they said, Hallelujah. And it's talk about the smoke rising up. Verse 4, The four and twenty elders and the four beasts fall down and worship God that sat on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all his servants, ye that fear him, both great and small. And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude, as the voice of many waters, as the voice of mighty thundering saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Heaven's going to be an exciting place. It's going to be thrilling. Okay, it's going to be a place of rejoicing. May I ask you, in a serious moment, but semi-silly, where's your happy place? Where is it that you just get peace and you enjoy? Is your happy place the beach? Is your happy place Hershey Park? And you become Hershey Park happy. Is your happy place going up to the Poconos and enjoying nature? Is your happy place something like Disney? Is your happy place visiting something that's historical and doing a museum? I guarantee you my kids did not call that their happy place. Okay. Is your happy place going out west and just seeing the mountains? Is your happy place taking, taking a cruise and eating yourself into oblivion? Okay. Is your happy place at home with the remote? Okay. And falling asleep and they want to change the channel you go, uh-uh. Okay. Is that your happy place? Wherever your happy place is, I can guarantee you, based on the Word of God, when you get to heaven, you will find that place to be your happiest and most peaceful place and moment in all of your life. Heaven will exceed everything. We won't miss a thing when we get to heaven. Amazing. Amazing. It's a place of righteousness. A righteousness because it's his father's home. It's like your house, you make your whole house, it takes on you. Well, we think, okay, what about God? We get a picture of God in Isaiah 6, God on his throne. And as, as Isaiah sees God, as the angels are bowing before God, what is their overriding comment about God? They say it three times. We sing it sometimes. Holy, holy, holy. Yeah, but that was a cue to you to say holy, okay? It's holiness. It's holiness. Holiness permeates heaven. It's, it, heaven is pure. Heaven is, is this place that's just absolutely fabulous. It, it talks about God that he is of pure eyes and behold evil. That doesn't mean God doesn't see sin. That, that's not what it means at all. That God doesn't see unsaved people. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean that God doesn't see Satan. That idea of beholding has the idea of taking pleasure in. giving a, I, a, you know, Looking and saying, hey, I give approval. Making this to be a part, hey, I'm beholding evil, I want you to be by me type thing. That in, in God's holiness there is nothing, no, no shall in no wise enter into heaven anything that defiles that works abomination or makes a lie. Now, some of you are clever enough that you're saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. What about Satan? Is Satan still having access today to this heaven? Yes, we've talked about this. He's not kicked out of heaven permanently until, oh man, I'm going to discourage myself. Okay, when's he permanently kicked out of heaven? The middle of the tribulation, when there's a great battle, he knows his time is short. He knows that he has three and a half years left. Up until then, he can go to heaven at times. And when he goes to heaven, what does he do? He accuses the brethren. Right. Okay. So you say, well, wait a minute. How How does this match up? Well, Satan doesn't have any real influence in heaven. He doesn't contaminate it. He gets to come on, on occasion and when he comes we have to remember he's already defeated by Jesus Christ. We remember he's not allowed to be a permanent residence. We know as well he makes no lasting impression. He doesn't turn God against us in any way shape or form and he's going to be cast out of there. So Satan has limited access to being there. Uh, but the overriding idea is heaven is absolutely a place that is untainted by sin, unblemished by it. The things that we look at that we see in this lifetime and in this world that, uh, that are you know, dangerous or obstacles to us, that's because of the effects of sin. We have storms because of sins. We have animals that attack because of sin. We have greed because of sin. In heaven, that's not there. There's no poverty. There's not going to be attacks. There's not going to be physical handicaps. There's not going to be the thorns or the thistles. There's nothing of that negative negative aspect. There won't be cockroaches in heaven. Okay, there's not going to be any of that stuff. Okay, nothing negative. Place of righteousness. But the best part for me, this is me personally, no temptation. No temptation. We are done with temptation. Totally. And so we'll experience more of that righteousness of God. Let's give you number nine. Number nine, heaven is a place of rewards. We talked about this in a previous message. That we are confident and willing rather to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord, that whether present or absent we may be accepted of Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat that we may receive the things done in our body according to whether it is Good, profitable, or bad, that is worthless. We did an entire message on the different rewards that are being given in heaven. You go back and refine that message, you'll get all the details. Number 10, heaven is a place of renewal. Place of renewal. What we mean by that is this. We're going to have new bodies in heaven. We're going to talk somewhat about that this evening. But we're going to have new bodies that are created to, designed to be living in that realm of heaven. We will have renewed minds, we are going to have a new understanding. You do realize that you and I don't fully understand everything in the, in the in aspect of heaven. It's beyond our, our capabilities. But when we get there, we're going to even have this new focus. And this is where it gets a little bit strange for us. Because here we are, we're like the Apostle Paul. We know it is better to die, that that is gain. But what holds us back? Why do we still fight for life? Because we have others who are here. We have others who, that Paul said, it is more needful for me to remain. I want to go to heaven, but I want it my way. I want all of my family to go with me. I want all my church to go with me. Because I have a real heart's longing for family, for friends in church that says in my heart, I'd still like to be here, I'd like to remain. Now, a few of you are beyond the rest of us. A few of you, you don't care if you went right away. But the, probably the majority of us, I'd like to think it's the majority, I want to go, but I also have a poll here. I want to see things in this, like my grandkids grow up. Maybe you can call me unspiritual, but I have a sense I'm not the only one. I had, I mean, this, this is how bad we were. When we were, when we were, uh, before we got married, we were like, "Lord, send the rapture after we get married," because we wanted to experience marriage. Lord, g- give the rapture after we have the precious moment of ra- having kids. Then, after we had kids, whew, Lord, whew, you know, take us home. <laughs> okay, you know what I mean, right? Yes, no? Okay, we have the two. I don't fully understand because I haven't experienced that side yet. All that I've experienced is this. And I know that's wonderful. I know it's awesome. But I don't fully, haven't had a chance to see how awesome it is. It's like a kid on a ride. They, they see this huge ride. They want to go on it, but they're scared. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. No, no, no. But once they take the ride, the first thing they say when they get off typically is, let's do it again. Okay. I'm at this point, I'm right here where, yeah, I want to do it, I want to do it, I want to do it, and, I'm, and I, I look for it, but I don't fully understand. And one day we're going to fully understand and really appreciate a whole lot more. What's there? I, I kind of equate, and this is my stupid illustration that I've used before. When my kids were little, my two girls in particular, when they were they were, you know, Daddy, I love you. Daddy, I love you. Daddy, I love you. Good kid. Good kid. Keep it up. Keep it up. You get more candy. Okay. Daddy, I love you. And then it would be this type of thing is, Daddy, when I get old, I'm going to marry you. Wise choice. Okay. Great choice. Here's more candy. Okay. So, you know, then what happens is they get older. They mature. They meet some dude. Okay. <laughs> some guy that they fall head over heels over and the guy takes them away away from me and I'm not bitter okay <laughs> is that good and normal yes it is yes it is okay what happened They matured to the point that, yes, we still love each other, but they embarked into a new relationship that was a good relationship, a healthy relationship, and they became enamored with that other guy. And that's okay. So in my mind, I often think it this way. Right now, I'm enamored with this. But when I mature and get to heaven, I'm going to be so enamored with Jesus Christ that a lot of this, all of a sudden, it isn't as prior. I'm going to have a new focus. A focus I can't fully understand right now. But it's going to happen. And I'm going to fully understand why God did what he did, why he makes the decisions he did, what his judgment that it's all right. And that everything that God did is best. So we're going to be able to experience that. Okay? It's, it's kind of like this little kid that was out in the back field with her daddy or her grandpa when visiting the farm. And they were looking at the stars, and they were just how beautiful the sky is when you get into the country and don't have city lights to blemish, you know, and cut back. And they were enjoying. And the little girl was just, wow, wow, it's so beautiful. And grandpa started talking about heaven and how beautiful heaven must be. And the little girl responded, Grandpa, if the bottom side of heaven is this beautiful, just how wonderful the top side must be. Amazing. Amazing. For all the greatness of heaven, let me end with this. It is a place of restrictions or a restricted place. Okay, The heaven doesn't have open borders. Do you know what I mean by open borders? (laughs) No man comes unto the Father but by me. Okay, here's the deal. Know ye not that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, the idolaters, adulterers, those who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. To be written in the Lamb's Book of Life means you've been forgiven of your sins. Okay, I go back here. Are, are some of us guilty of these things? The truth is yes. How do we get into heaven? Because we've repented of these things and been forgiven by the blood of the Lamb. And only the blood of the Lamb can cleanse us and get our names written in the Lamb's book of life. You see, in heaven, heaven is like many of our countries around the world. You can't get in without a passport. You don't get in. You don't get into heaven without your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. How do you get your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? You have to do a couple things. Recognize you don't deserve heaven. I don't deserve to get into heaven. None of us do. Because the Bible says there is how many righteous and good enough? None. None of us. All of us have sinned and come short of the standard, the glory to get into heaven. In fact, if we get what we deserved, we would go to hell. The wage of one sin is enough to just damn me to hell forever. But the gift of God, a gift is not something you deserve. A gift is given out of love by the giver. And so I need to recognize this, that I don't deserve to go to heaven because I go to church, because I was baptized, because I'm a preacher, because I do this, that, or the other thing. Okay, none of us get to heaven by that. There no man cometh under the Father but by me, Jesus said. And so what happens is I need to respond the way that God said. That response involves repentance, that if I shall confess with my mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, if I believe in my heart, not just here, not just here, knowing the facts, but I believe here. I believe that God raised him from the dead so as to give me forgiveness. And then what I do with that is I have to do the calling. I I know what Jesus did, but now I ask Him. I believe in Him. I accept Him and say, Jesus, I know You are God who died. you raised again. You are giving me the gift of eternal life. You offer it to me. I don't deserve it. Forgive me of my sins and give me this gift. If I do that, if you do that, we're on our way to heaven. It's not real profound. It's not real complicated. But it is real. You must be born again. Except a man be born again, he shall not see the kingdom of God. Except a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And my friend, no matter what you think, what you say, you know. You know that you've got an eternity to take care of. Any of you remember this guy Brezhnev? Yes, no? He was the head of the USSR, head of Russia before... The, the iron wall and everything collapsed. He was um, he was still the communist leader right towards the beginning of the Reagan administration. And uh, he had uh, that whole regime at that time. What did they believe about God? There, there was none. Okay, they denied God. They were atheists. Brezhnev led that whole philosophy and that realm for a number of years. When he died, George Bush was sent as the vice president to be there to witness you know, represent the United States. And he ended up being put on the front row and very close to the casket. And so they had the state funeral, whatever they did, okay, because there was no religion involved because they don't believe in God. But Mrs. Brezhnev came up to this casket. And others gathered around, family and things like that. And eventually George Bush said he was at an angle, he saw something very peculiar. Everybody else backed away. She was next to the casket all by herself. The soldiers were bringing the casket lid. As they were approaching the coffin, she all of a sudden made a quick gesture. Three signs of the cross real quick across Brezhnev's chest. Too little, too late, by the way. But isn't it amazing that in that atheistic communist household, she knew. She knew. She knew there was life after death. She knew it had to do with something with God in Christ. She knew. She's trying to do something quick that's not going to work. But she knew. You know. you know that you're going to spend your life somewhere after your body dies. Do you know if it's going to be in heaven? Do you know you're going to heaven? The Bible says these things have written that you may know that you have eternal life. We're going to be praying. And as we pray, our staff is headed for those doors right there. And if you're here in this room today and you are not sure that you are on your way to heaven, while I'm praying, feel free to get up and go and talk to one of those individuals in private to find out, to make sure that you are on your way to this heaven. You do nothing, fine. That's your choice. We can't force you. But you also risk going to hell. You need to take the opportunity and get born again.